Hello, everybody. Nice to be with you. Uh, I wish you all a good, good evening for those of you who are in India and Asia. A good day to those of you who are in Europe, and a good morning to those of you who are in the Americas. It's great to be with you all on the forty-eighth live episode of Ask Abhijit. So let's see who all is with us. I can see many of you have been commenting. I can see Karthik, Futuristic, Akash, Knox. Priyash, the real traveler, Tanmay Deshpande, Shivaji Raje, Aryan Chauhan, Satoru Gojo, Dragon Power, S2 Vlogs, Danish Gurung, Vedant, Shibani, Akshay, Erin, Kingster, Pavan, Gautam, Ultimate Tiger, Prachi Agarwal, Hardik Sharma, AJ Nair, Pratik, Pratik Sangam, Tanmay, Gaurav, Prithvi Ram, Sujoy Kumar Ghosh, Divij, Janish, Abhay Shah, Aryan, Yuvraj Garg, Sujoy again, Saurabh, Ayush Negi, Kalyan, Tushar, Harbinger, Sonutivari, Samir Pandey, Neha, Harsh, Priya, Abhiraj, Itachi, Tanmay, Sushant and many, many more. Good evening, good day to all of you. Thank you so much for being here. So we're going to discuss whatever you ask me. Any questions you have, I will take them up. History, geopolitics, physics, science, astrophysics, quantum physics, philosophy. <laughs> you guys decide, ask me questions, I answer them. So let's take a few questions. Uh, first of all, I would like to tell you that I do read all of your comments. I am no longer able to answer comments individually because there are hundreds of comments every day, but I do take the time every day to uh, try and read as many of your comments as possible. Uh, like I said, it's impossible to answer them all, but I try to read as many as I can. So I do hear you. I do know what you are saying, and I appreciate all the comments and all the inputs and the opinions that you voice in the comment section. So please keep it coming. I do read them. Right. So let's take a few questions now. Okay. Question number one is by... Sankarshan, why, I ha why are Harappan inscriptions not in Sanskrit? So the answer to this is that we don't know what language these inscriptions are in because the script has not been deciphered. It has never been deciphered. There are many claims by various individuals of having deciphered the script, but none of those claims have ever withstood the scrutiny of uh, independent review. For example, there was this individual called Iravatan Mahadevan who claimed to have deciphered the, the Indus Valley region script. He said it was the form of Tamil or something, but I have read his papers. They are utter nonsense. So I'm not saying it is this or that, it is Sanskrit or it is Tamil or it is, it's not this or not that. My simple, very simple point is that the Harappan script, the so-called Harappan or Indus Valley script has never been deciphered. And therefore we don't know for sure what language it represents and therefore we cannot make the claim that these inscriptions are not in Sanskrit or not in Tamil or not in some other language because we simply don't know what language it is until it is deciphered. So the focus, the emphasis of researchers, of historians, of, or of linguists, of scientists, of computer scientists, etc. The focus needs to be first of all on deciphering this script. And I believe I am 
I am very strongly of the opinion that we need to use computer science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, these new technologies in trying to decipher the script. Because clearly it represents one of the ancient languages of India. Some people claim it is Tamil. Okay, fine. I am. I, I will take that claim seriously, but it has to be proven. And the uh, most people, I mean, uh, one group says it is Tamil or proto-Tamil. The other group says it is Sanskrit, Vedic Sanskrit or post-Vedic Sanskrit or some form of Sanskrit. Well, these two claims exist. These are the two major claims. So we need to decipher the script first and try to see which language group or which language family it matches. And only then can we make claims like the, it's not in Sanskrit or it's not in Tamil or whatever, right? So the simple point is it's never been deciphered thus far and therefore we cannot say it's not this or not that. I hope that explains what where we are right now as far as this issue is concerned. Right, let's take a few more questions. Okay. Prithviram says, recently the Karnataka High Court declared that Tipu Sultan fought with the British so that he could impose the Muslim rule and he even did various horrific things, etc. And what is my view about this? My view about Tipu, the, Tipu Sultan is very clear. He was a barbarian. He was a brutal tyrant. That's what he was. He was not a force for any kind of good. He was someone who try, who spent his entire life and career trying to destroy Indian culture, and uh, you know, and and he spent his entire career oppressing the people of India, he, the people he ruled over. There is absolutely uh, no doubt about this, no question about this. Yes, in the past there has been this narrative that has been woven around this individual. He has been portrayed as a freedom fighter every year on Republic Day or whatever India, whatever the day is. You have these uh, this display, this parade in New Delhi, in which uh, the state of Karnataka puts up the effigy of this monster, as if he's some great uh, representative of Karnataka. I think. So you know what? It, this, this is all, this has all been debunked. Uh, the narrative which mainstream historians had put across for decades in India, all the textbooks also in India used to say this is it's that he was a freedom fighter who fought against the British. And he, there was even some some TV series on the state-run television television channel, Doordarshan, wasn't it? The Sword of Tipu Sultan, in which he is portrayed as a great freedom fighter who fought for the country and died for the country. That's all lies. It has all been debunked. He was a brutal tyrant. And uh, if the Karnataka High Court has recognized this fact, well, I am glad it has. Because there is there was absolutely nothing about him that was good. He was an oppressor, he was a tyrant, he was a brute, he was a barbarian, he was a monster. I mean, I can go on, but you get the point. So that is the fact about this specific individual, Tipu. Kalyan Karthik asks, despite uh, being the founder's zone of humans, why is Africa always left in the dark? We never read any African history. 
the West disposed of the entire continent as a mere resource factory. Why? Well, that's what the West has done. If you uh, study the history of the past 500 or so years, it's the age of colonization. <clears throat> so the West came, um, the West acquired certain, they developed and acquired certain technologies uh, that enabled, that allowed them to uh, navigate the whole world um, via the oceans and uh, they developed these technologies such as uh, firearms etc which enabled them to rapidly conquer other countries faraway countries the americas we know what happened there a brutal horrific genocide happened there more than 100 million people native americans died in north america itself alone and even worse happened in southern america in south america and they colonized the whole of africa they colonized most of asia we, we know what they did in india they stole the they, they plundered the entire wealth of india for about two and a half three centuries india's gdp was over one third of the entire world's gdp and by the time the british left in 1947 india's gdp was less than two percent of the world's gdp so we can see where the wealth went and the british gdp rose while india's gdp fell so it's very clear what happened now when it comes to africa in the 19th century the european nations divided up the entire continent of africa for colonial purposes. The Germans were involved, the Belgians were involved, the Italians were involved to some extent. The French had a very great, uh, very, uh, very prominent role in colonizing Africa. The British, of course, were involved in this. Even the Americans were involved. So they divided up the con continent and plundered everything they could, all the natural resources, all the mineral wealth, whatever was there, everything. Uh, it was, it is a horrific, dispiriting episode of history horrific because africa had its own civilizations and kingdoms very civilized very advanced but unfortunately all these uh the, the thing about all the polytheistic cultures is that they are very tolerant they are very respectful of others they are very accepting they are willing to forgive mistakes and forgive trans transgressions and all that so that is a pattern that you see throughout the past three five or three or five centuries that these monotheistic Abrahamic cultures have wiped out and destroyed every polytheistic culture in the world, almost. I think India is the only one that stands now. The only and the oldest civilization. So this is what happened to Africa. Africa had incredible has, has an incredible history which has all been wiped out. Uh, I think today uh, native African historians and writers are trying to rediscover the history of, of Africa. But uh, if they had any written records, etc., they did have writing systems and all, but it's all been destroyed by the Europeans. The same way the history of Southern America, South America was destroyed. All the ancient texts of the indigenous peoples in South America were destroyed by Christian missionaries because they, they considered that to be the work of the devil or whatever. That was the pretext. So if you destroy the native people's history, then you can impose your own version of history on them. And you can impose your foreign religion on them. So that's what happened in South, in South America and North America. That's what happened in Africa. Almost everyone in these places, in these in these continents, is almost exclusively Christian now. The only uh, region that uh, resisted was Asia to some extent. India, India is still not converted. <laughs> well, there are conversions happening as we speak right now, but that's a different story. So that's the reason why. We never get to read any African history because all the records have been destroyed, if any existed. All the kingdoms, all the empires, all the civilizations, all the cultures have been totally wiped out. 
the almost the entirety of Africa's population is Christian now or Muslim. But there is very little, very little indigenous culture left. Yes, there are the various uh, peoples, there, there are various uh, ethnic groups like the Igbos and various other people, the Zulus and so on, the Bantus, who to some extent preserve, try to preserve some aspects, aspects of their indigenous culture. But when it comes to religion, they are mostly all converted to one or the other Abrahamic religion. And so, so that's the sad story of, of Africa. It's the the place was plundered, destroyed, and then discarded, and uh, we can see the consequences of that today in the place. I mean, today Africa has been divided. the The political boundaries of Africa have been all arbitrarily drawn by the European powers. So what happens is that you have these ethnic groups that are spread across multiple countries. Ideally, you would draw political boundaries based on where each ethnic group, each linguistic group, resides. Now what happens is that you have two or three countries across which an ethnic group is divided, for example, the Igbo people or whatever, and their allegiance lies to their ethnicity more than to the country in which they reside. And therefore you have these horrible uh, outbreaks of tribal violence and, and, and much more. And then you had what happened in Rwanda two decades ago, which was all done by the Catholic Church. They have actually officially apologized for their role in the Rwanda genocide. So even today you have so much interference from the West in Africa. They will simply not let Africa be in peace and, and develop on its own. So that's a, a brief uh, overview of what happened in Africa and what's still happening in Africa today. It's it's a very sad story. Africa has I, most likely a history that's even older than that of Asia because to the best of what we understand, the human species originated in Africa and later on it came out of Africa and spread in other parts of the world. So I think Africa's history is the oldest history and we know next to nothing about it, which is a, which is a, which is a tragedy, tragedy. All right, let's go to some other questions. Some other questions. Okay, so once again, I have answered many of these questions. So in the, so in case I'm not answering your questions, please search my channel. Most likely, most likely you will find that the question you have asked is already been answered. I have so many short clips. You can go through those. Just search for, for your question and you will most likely find it. All right. Akash asks, can Putin, Vladimir Putin, be termed as a modern-day Chanakya of geopolitics, as he has many achievements in Chechnya, Ukraine, Georgia, Syria, Afghanistan, Venezuela, made Germany and Turkey take anti-NATO steps. Yes, uh, I would not say that Mr. Putin is a modern-day Chanakya, but uh, these the uh, policies and strategies that Mr. Putin pursues are nationalistic policies. Uh, they are these are policies that are grounded in realism, not idealism. They are grounded in real politics, and the only approach is the the major approach is that of pursuing the national interest of Russia, and that is very much the Chan the school of thought that uh, Vishnugupta Chanakya propounded. If you study his writings, if you study the Arthashastra, etc., you will find that he was very much a proponent of real politic of realism and of putting the national interest above everything else. So the duty, the highest duty 
of a ruler is to ensure the long term prosperity of the nation and the people so the ruler is supposed to serve the nation and the people in a lo- in the long term you may take certain do certain things in the short term that may not be well understood but as long as it has the right long term effect it is all valid and legitimate so the highest morality is that the kingdom or the country or the nation should prosper and the people should prosper and i think overall if you look at the entire uh, career of mr putin as the president or the leader of russia he has taken actions that promote the russian national interest the long term national interest so he has certainly uh, expanded done his best to expand russia's sphere of influence and the sphere of military uh, intelligence and other activities in like you said he has succeeded in pacifying the the caucasus region dagestan chechnya uh, etc he has taken uh, certain actions in ukraine he has reclaimed the crimean region which historically has been a part a part of the russian empire so i think he was uh, he was from his perspective justified in annexing crimea using military means when it comes to georgia also he has uh, furthered his national interest in that region syria he has succeeded in defeating to to, to a large extent nato and the us in syria uh, he he is now uh, russian in, interests are now uh, playing out in afghanistan as well uh, in southern america also germany is siding with russia when it comes to the nord stream pipeline the, the gas pipeline and turkey is now to a significant extent pro russia even though it is still officially a member of nato so this is how the game of geopolitics is played i mean you may recall perhaps that just some time ago just a couple of years ago maybe 2 3 years ago there was this incident this military incident between turkey and russia in which the turks shot down a russian fighter jet i think one or two russian pilots lost their lives in this turkish military action and despite that today turkey is more of a russian ally not an ally of uh, officially but it is leaning more towards russia than towards nato so this shows how the game of geopolitics is played you may have certain setbacks in the mutual relationship from time to time and yet you have to overcome those setbacks and look at the larger perspective what is your larger national interest yes there were certain problems the turks shot down a russian plane a couple of russian pilots died now if it was indians they would be all emotional and say we should never work with them again but mr putin is not emotional he thinks he sees things from a larger perspective from the national interest perspective and that's why despite this action by turkey he was willing to reach out to turkey negotiate with mr erdogan and bring him to his side so that is how you play the game of geopolitics through realism through real politics and by putting everything subsidiary to the national interest so yes mr putin can be said to be following the teachings and the uh, principles of vishnugupta chanakya i have said this many times in the past that it is a crying shame that india is the one country in the world that does not follow the teachings of vishnugupta chanakya even though the teachings came from india from one of our greatest thinkers it is countries like china and pakistan and turkey and russia that follow the chanakyan principles far better than india so this is something that needs to be rectified we need 
I think in the past decade, in the past six, seven years, India has become far better at its geopolitical game and the kind of politics, uh, in the kind of policies and foreign policy we have. I think we are improving significantly. So there is certainly room for optimism, but it we need to get better at this for sure. So excellent question, sir. Right, let's take a few more questions. Sujoy Kumar Ghosh asks, who is Lalita Ditya and what and what are his contributions to Bharat, to India? At what time period the Mauryan Empire existed late 4th century? As the mainstream says, 1500 BCE or some claim, how was it determined? See, the, uh, the chronology of Indian history is still a matter of debate because the entire chronology was created by the British historians, by the colonial powers. And uh, there are clearly lots of flaws in that. It's in, if you look at the official chronology of India's history from the mainstream history perspective, it's as if there was nothing in India, no history in India before 500 BCE. There is not a single name of a king that is pu- published in print. There's not a single name of a, of a kingdom or empire or republic or anything within India that's published before 500 BCE. So it's as if the mainstream historians have decided there was no history in India before 500 BCE. And if you look at the archaeological record, we find evidence of archaeological settlements that go back 10,000 years in India. Extensive uh, archaeological settlements. You have the entire Saptasindhu region, which has this incredible ancient urban phase of India's civilization, the so-called Harappan or Saraswati civilization phase of India. And in various other parts of India also, we are now beginning to discover that there has been an extensive networked uh, uh, networked settlements everywhere, whether it is in the Ganga Yamuna plain, whether it is in Varanasi, whether it is in southern India, Kiladi, and uh, various other places, which we are now discovering. If even if you go all the way down to Sri Lanka, if you, even if you go all the way to Kalinga, Magadh, which is uh, Orissa and Bihar, even if you go to Chandraketugar, Bihar, uh, sorry, uh, Bengal. And even if we go all the way north to the Punjab region, to Afghanistan, to present-day Pakistan, we find settlements everywhere. So what I am trying to say is that the chronology of India's history is going to eventually change as as proper research is done. And that's why there are these questions about when when did various empires actually exist in India? Some people claim that uh, the actual date of uh, Gautam Buddha is about 1500 BCE, not 500 or 400 BCE, right? Some people may have made this claim. Some people have uh, called into question the dating of Vardhaman Mahavir, the founder of the, uh, the last great Tirthankar of Jainism, and so on. So I think this is all eventually going to be rearranged, the chronology, as we discover more things. It's bound to happen. Now, uh, according to... Uh, the accepted versions of history, uh, the Mauryan dynasty uh, was post-Buddha sometime in the, I think, um, 4th century or so BC, approximately, right? Uh, that's when it began. That's when Vishnugupta Chanakya brought this young boy, Chandragupta, to power. He was an orphan boy. He had no lineage, no aristocratic lineage or royal lineage. He was an orphan boy, but Chandragupta uh, Maurya was elevated. He was tutored by the great strategist and realist 
Vishnugupta Chanakya, and he was elevated to the status of Emperor of all India. Incredible story. And that's how the Mauryan Empire began. Now, who is Lalit Aditya? Lalit Aditya Muktapida, I don't remember the exact uh, century in which he lived, but he was one of the great kings of India. I think he was based in Kashmir, uh, Srinagar or so, somewhere thereabouts. He is the person, he is the emperor who who constructed the great Martand Sun Temple in northern India, in Kashmir. And he was a great conqueror. Uh, mainstream historians try to deny this, but it seems from what we know from the uh, written records, uh, it, it appears that he conquered large parts of Central Asia and uh, large parts of uh, the rest of India as well. So he was a great conqueror. He was a very vigor vigorous military campaigner. And uh, he most likely is one of the great one of the great emperors of India. And I have said this in the past that if you are a great emperor in India, the mainstream historians will try and will try and marginalize your contribution. So, so there are many such great kings. Amogavarsha, uh, who I think was a Rashtrakuta emperor, if I am not mistaken. I remember Amogavarsha. Uh, you have the Cholas, who until very recently no one used to write about, no one spoke about in the uh, until about five years ago. I think about five years ago, almost no one in India knew the great achievements of the Chola of the Chola Empire. They conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia, all the way to the Philippines, right? So almost no one knew about this because the mainstream historians would not write about this. There was there would be no mention of the Cholas, or the Chalukyas, or the Rashtrakutas, or the Satvahanas, or, or any of these empires and dynasties in our history textbooks. So that's the. That's what's going to change now. Now that history is out of the hands of these state-sponsored historians, now that you have independent researchers, even scientists who are now studying and researching history, now the truth is beginning to come out and it's going to accelerate. This process is going to accelerate in the coming years, in the next decade or so. So what I would say is that Lalita Ditya Muktapida was one of the great emperors of India. And that is somebody that needs to be studied in far greater detail. All right. Okay, I can see one question being asked 17 or 18 times, which I will <laughs> not take. Uh, let's see some more questions. Okay, here we are again. Uh, my views on Audrey Trushke. I think that that person is not even worth discussing. See, uh, I may have said this before. Let me say it again. I do not discuss individuals. Individuals don't matter. I do discuss individuals who are major historical figures, people who have genuinely changed the world or contributed something significant to the world. I will discuss such individuals. I will discuss Vishnugupta Janaki. I will discuss Chandragupta Maurya. I will discuss Emperor Ashok, whether he was good or bad, doesn't matter. He was a significant figure. I will discuss historical figures, Napoleon, Alexander, uh, Julius Caesar, Arminius, uh, I will discuss historical figures and I will discuss prominent figures today who are significantly changing the world. That's why I will discuss world leaders who are still active today. I will discuss uh, people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, etc. People who really matter. Now the person uh, you just spoke about, Audrey Trushke, Trushke is an insignificant person 
50 years from today, nobody will give a damn about that person. So I do not discuss such people. I don't discuss myself. Do I talk about myself? Who is Abhijit Chavda? What is his life and career? Who cares? I am not that important. I don't matter. So I do not discuss individuals. It is a matter of simple, straightforward policy that, that such people don't deserve to be discussed. So that's all I have to say about that. Right, let's take some more questions. Some more questions. Now, this is an individual I am willing to discuss. Yogi Adityanath. I think he is a very promising leader. I have a great deal of hope in in uh, Yogi Ji, Yogi Adityanath Ji, and I hope that once he has uh, sufficient uh, sufficient uh, what do we call it? experience in administering a state like UP, I hope that one day in the future, not in the very far future, he may hopefully ascend to the leadership of the country. I think there is a great deal of uh, potential in Yogiji and I hope to see that happen in the future when the time is right. So I think I, I think that he is one of the very promising leaders in India today. Right, some more questions. Ekichi Onizuka. Someone asked me if I watch anime, Japanese anime. You know what? I wish I had the time to watch anime. When I was a kid, I used to love watching cartoons. Uh, unfortunately, as of today, I do not watch any anime. I don't have the time at all. I wish I had the time to watch certain such entertainment shows. I used to like anime, yes, but I no longer have the time to watch it. Anyway, uh, what you're saying is that please do a bookshelf tour showing us your book collection future video. Maybe hopefully I'll do that in the future. Uh, this is not the only book collection I have. I have a whole stack of more books. I have two or three more bookshelves like these elsewhere. And I have books lying around everywhere. So I have so many books. I have more books. I have I, I buy more books than I can read, and I have read more books than I can I have ever bought. So that's <laughs> that's uh, how it is with me and the books. So these books here, uh, many of these are all are about physics. I mean, professional physics books, uh, MSc, PhD, and further level. And there are other books as well over here about. I think history and philosophy and some fiction as well. And I've got so many other books elsewhere. So maybe in the future I shall perhaps make it to a, a video about the books that I have. Maybe. So, yeah, okay. Thanks for the suggestion. Yes. All right. What else do we have? Uh, Georgian Ajayraj says, please tell us about the Kalpa Vigraha Idol. Idol. You know, I haven't studied this in sufficient detail. I have heard about it. Uh, there is this claim that it's an extraordinarily old idol, about 20 or 26,000 years old or something. I still haven't uh, found the time to study it in detail. So maybe give me a week or so and I shall get back to you about this. Well, it's a good question. Thank you for asking. I shall study this in more detail and then I shall get back to you about this. Uh, Sparsh says, is the government of India really democratic or partial? See, the democracy, uh, let me tell you something. Democracy is an illusion. Whether it is India, whether it is the European Union, whether it is the United States, all these liberal democracies, they, to a large extent, democracy is an illusion. It is a facade that hides a deeper reality. 
for so why do i say that democracy is, is an illusion i think many of you will disagree with what i am saying and i understand why you will disagree because aren't we all allowed to vote once in 5 years isn't that the meaning of democracy well i have some news for you my friends democracy is not only about voting once in 5 years the the true see there is something called first principles thinking there are two kinds of thinking one is dogmatic thinking and one is first principles thinking dogmatic thinking means you have heard various narratives from the media you have read some articles you may have read a book or two or somebody you admire in the in the in the as a public thinker as an intellectual may have certain opinions and you believe all that and then when you when i say that democracy is an illusion you will reactively say that no you are wrong because all these people have told me that democracy is true and democracy democracy is the best thing in the world so that is called dogmatic thinking you are thinking using the product products of other people's thoughts you are not thinking from first principles so what is first principles thinking first principles thinking means going to the root of the problem when i when you talk about democracy first ask yourself what is the meaning of democracy voting once in 5 years is not the meaning of democracy the true meaning of democracy is that since you have a, such a large population in any country you cannot all get together and run the country therefore you elect representatives who truly represent your will and those people will run the country on your behalf but they have to be answerable to you throughout they have to be answerable to you and they cannot run the country based on their whims and fancies the moment they try to do that they have to be removed so democracy has to be participative and everybody every citizen should have an equal chance of becoming an elected representative and democracy has to be participative not just once in five when you vote once in five years and then you forget about it you're not participating in democracy right so here's what happens in most democracies you vote once in five years then you forget about it and then you have no role in the governance or the running of the country or in influencing those whom you have voted for and the second thing is that are you actually are you actually capable of running for election if you if you want to stand for election do you stand a chance according to the theory of democracy every citizen has an, has the right to stand for election and hopefully become a representative of the, of the people so that is in theory and in theory in india it, it is like that but in reality you don't stand a chance of being elected unless you have crores of rupees to throw about in each election so a common citizen doesn't stand a chance of getting elected as an independent candidate you have to become a member of a political party and they will choose you as a as they will give you a um, they will allow you to stand for election only if you meet certain criteria now these political parties is there any internal democracy in these political parties i am not talking about any specific party i am saying in general if you look at the average political party in india is there any internal democracy do they vote for their leaders 
or do they have a leader who is a, do they have leadership that runs in families so the truth is that most political parties in india are family run proprietorships there is no internal democracy within the members of the political party never get to choose the leaders they can only worship those who are in power in the party and that's why every the every election year after year year you get the same five or six candidates standing for election this is not democracy this is a farce first of all in, individual citizens don't stand a chance if this if they try to stand for election and secondly political parties have no internal democracy and thirdly there is no participation in democracy once you vote once the election is done you are marginalized as a citizen you have no say in what happens afterwards so this is why i say that democracy is fake democracy has to be real there has to be democracy throughout even within political parties there need to be transparent elections for the leadership of the party and so on i think i need to talk about this in further much detail in a structured manner maybe i'll make a video about this so this is not the situation only in india it's a situation in most so called democracies in the world and that's how it is so i would say to answer your question the government of india is partially democratic partially democratic it's not a real through and through democracy india is not a through and through democracy no country in the world is a real proper democracy that's the answer that's the truth Preeth Mohanty says, "What will happen in world geopolitics if Russia becomes more powerful than, than the U.S.? Well, then you will have a geopolitical realignment. Right now, the major power in the world still is the United States of America. It has the world's largest and most powerful military. It has this global network of military bases in various countries across the world. It has naval bases. It has uh, non-naval bases as well. It has airports. It has access all over the world, and therefore, it's a global power. It can influence." events in the world at a moment's notice that's why it's called a superpower china is an aspiring superpower they want to reach that status but they are still far from it their economic might is significant but now their economy is is showing signs of grinding to a standstill which is a dangerous sign for the world now when it comes to russia i think it may not i am not 100% sure but i think it's not even in the world's top 10 economies or maybe if it is it is somewhere near the 8 9 10 positions most likely it's not in the top 10 so economically it's not that powerful russia's real power is its legacy military so when the ussr was a superpower it had built up this military uh, might it had built up the means of, of of producing military hardware it developed all these technologies whether it is rocket technology missiles uh, nuclear weapons submarines warships fighter aircraft other kinds of aircraft artillery tanks and so much more so after the ussr collapsed everything went into a decline but when mr vladimir putin took over he uh, rejuvenated to some extent uh, the military machine of russia he uh, stopped the decline of the technologies and 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 the military uh, uh, the armed forces and all that he invested a lot in the armed forces and that's why the russian military is a genuine force to be reckoned with despite russia not being a very powerful and very big economy and the other thing is that russia has the world's largest arsenal 
of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. I think their arsenal may be larger than the arsenal of the US. So Russia, even though it's not a major economy, a very large economy, it is still, I think, the number two military power in the world. It has the power to obliterate a country like China if the need requir- is required, or even the US. Uh, but of course, it will that, that will never happen. One does not ever use nuclear weapons in the real world in, in warfare. It is it is a deterrent and nothing else. So the question is, what hap- would happen if Russia becomes more powerful than the, than the US? The Russian military is a very big uh, factor in this. It is almost as powerful as the US military. Uh, when it comes to Europe and Asia, Eurasia, Russia is, I think, the most prominent and most powerful military force in the continent. So it's already a very big power. If And I don't think Russia has the ambition of becoming a superpower again. They are not trying to construct military bases across the world. They're not trying to do that. They're not trying to project power globally. I think they are the, their, their emphasis is on consolidating their position, position in Eurasia. But if Russia were to do that, then the world would become more interesting. There would be a tripolar race then for superpowerdom, US, Russia, and China. And that would complicate matters significantly. So that is all hypothetical. But as of today, Russia is a very major military power. And maybe it's a stabilizing factor to some extent, because the world needs some sort of balance. If you have only one superpower, then that superpower can run roughshod over the entire world. When you have two or three major powers, then it makes the world a more balanced place, but sometimes a more dangerous place. So that's how it is. Tanuj Prakash says, if all humans have the indigenous people of Africa as their common ancestors, then how come, then how did different races come into existence? Shouldn't we all have been black? Good question. See, there is no such thing as a race. The The concept of race is an outdated concept. It's an unscientific concept. There is no such thing as a pure race. There is no such thing even as a pure species, uh, you know, surprisingly enough. So these are, uh, these are categories that were constructed by scientists I would say in the 18th and 19th centuries, the concept of race, the concept of uh, species, etc., when science was very much still quite rudimentary. Today we understand science much more. We understand molecular biology. We understand genetics, population genetics, ethnography, and much more. So we now know that there is no such thing as a pure race or a pure species. Now, how did so? But your question is still valid. That the people of Africa, as we know, they are they all have dark skin. They are what we call the African race or the black race, so so to say. So, how come people in different parts of the world who are the product of an out of Africa migration, how come people across the world look so different? The people in Eastern Asia look different, the people in India, in the Indian subcontinent look different, uh, and Iran, the people in Western Asia look different, the people um, in Siberia look different again. The people in Europe are also, also have a different appearance, different skin color, different eye color, hair color, and so on. Even in Europe, you have so many differences. If you go to Scandinavia, etc., you have people with blonde hair, very fair skin, blue eyes mostly. You go to Ireland, you get people with red hair. You go to Greece and in the Mediterranean region, the people 
over there have significantly darker skin they are like like some people in india actually the kind of skin color and hair color eye color they have etc et so how come there is so much diversity in the human species diversity of superficial appearance when we all came out of africa and the reason for that is that people evolve genetics evolves there is something called uh, natural selection certain features are desirable when you live in a certain climate for instance if you're living in africa where the sun is so bright especially in the equatorial region then it is beneficial for you to have more melanin in your skin because melanin blocks uh, much of the uh, energetic output of sunlight it blocks the ultraviolet rays etc and it ensures that you don't get cancer skin cancer and other such uh, problems that's why when people live in equatorial regions for multiple generations maybe 10 20 30 generations they automatically develop darker skin and similarly some some effect would be visible in the hair eye color etc now when you move to northern latitudes for instance in siberia in in russia or in mongolia etc where or tibet where the effect of sunlight is significantly less than in the equatorial regions well in that case it is beneficial for you to have a lighter skin color because it is only when you absorb more sunlight that you will be able to uh, have sufficient vitamin d which is essential in the body for absorbing calcium and developing strong strong bones etc so that's why uh, natural selection ensures that people who live in northern latitudes for multiple generations they or they slowly start developing lighter skin now if you live in snow covered plains etc where the, you have this glaring sun glaring reflection of sunlight into your eyes then it is useful to develop smaller eyes and that's how a, a certain look appears over time and so on and so forth when people live in india which is neither very hot neither very cold uh, etc then you will develop a moderate skin tone you know like the typical brown skin that you find in various parts of the indian subcontinent pakistan afghanistan even iran to some extent and so on so that's how it happens so it is because of natural selection it's because of evolution because you have to adapt to your climatic and geographical environment so we have been out of africa for about 70 80000 years i think there is a sufficient amount of time to develop all these different characteristics and that's why we are not all black but in the past people who lived in europe were also black for instance before the yamnaya invasion of of europe you had various uh, groups uh, population groups in europe that had very black skin for instance the cromanian people the cheddar man in the british isles uh, etc they had significantly darker skin than almost uh, like today's uh, average african skin tone so you did have that in europe in the past and not in the very distant past but sometime in the last 10000 or so years itself so things change things change as human migrations happen and so on and so forth it's a complicated story but we are now uncovering it thanks to archaeology and especially genetics right Tanmay says war has killed millions of people so how would the world be like with only peace well it would be a great world but unfortunately the the sad reality of the human species is that we are a war like violent species it is inherent in our nature the entire 
history of humanity is a history of warfare and conflict. You find uh, evidence of conflict even in ancient Africa. You find uh, uh, they have recently discovered certain uh, burial sites in eastern Africa, I believe, which seem to uh, be the earliest archaeological evidence of warfare. You have people who clearly show uh, uh, wounds in their bones. So they died as a result of those wounds and so on. And they've been buried in a certain manner. So what we know is that the history of humanity is a history of warfare. Human migrations inevitably lead to warfare and conflict. And that is not only just something that is characteristic to us humans, our closest relatives, our cousins, the chimpanzees, are equally, if not more, violent than us. They also live in groups, in social groups, and these groups from time to time come into conflict, and then there is full-scale war. And not just random mob violence, calculated, strategic, planned violence. So the chimpanzees also do that. It's been observed. And they are quite brutal. So that is something we share with our closest cousins, the chimpanzees. We are a warlike we are a violent species. We are a warlike species. We try to uh, go beyond these limitations. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't always work. For instance, India has been a very pacifistic kind of culture. I know we have also had conquerors and all. But if you look at Indian philosophy, if you look at Dharma, it is all about ahinsa parmo dharma. Non-violence is the greatest ideal. That's what we have tried to practice. But when you become non-violent while others are violent, it doesn't work. And that's what we have seen in the past 1000 years in India. So it doesn't work, unfortunately. It would be great to have a world with only peace. But our nature is such that we are greedy. We want more and more. We want to control more resources across the world. We want to control more people across the world. It's about power. It's about resources. And that's all what geopolitics is about. And that's why we simply don't have peace. Even right now, we have certain conflicts going on in certain parts of the world. And the way the geopolitical environment is shaping up during this decade, it looks like something could go bad again. It looks like 1930s all over again right now. So that's just the way it is. It is in our nature that we keep going to war. We keep fighting. So that's how it is. Whether we like it or not, that's the fact of life. Right, let's take some more questions. Now, this is a question that's interesting. Was Mikhail Gorbachev a good leader who tried to save the USSR or was he just a Western puppet? I think there is a significant, uh, there is a significant opinion in uh, many parts of Russia that Mikhail Gorbachev was a Western puppet. And, and well, we do know that the USSR collapsed under his watch while he was the leader of the USSR. So clearly he was not strong enough or a good, good enough leader to keep the USSR together. He presided over the collapse and the disintegration of the USSR. And then he handed over in some way or the other power. I mean, his, his uh, successor was Boris Yeltsin, who was very much a Western ally. And under Boris Yeltsin, Russia Ah, it just went so bad. It so it, it I mean the economy collapsed, the people were in poverty, 
Boris Yeltsin's uh, reign as the leader of Russia was one of the lowest points in Russia in the past century or so. And it all happened thanks to the actions of Mr. Gorbachev, whether it was his actions or his omissions, whether it's acts of commission or acts of omission, doesn't matter. But history will look at Mr. Gorbachev as somebody who was unable to keep the USSR together and his actions led to what happened later in the 1990s, the all the near collapse of the economy. So I would say that Mr. Gorbachev was not a good leader. Uh, a country the size of Russia or the USSR needs a very strong, powerful leader. I am not saying the leader needs to be an autocratic, an oppressive or tyrannical leader, but the leader has to be strong enough to be able to... to hold the country together and administer it in the right way. And the same applies to India. A country the size of India, a subcontinent-sized country, needs a leader of that magnitude, somebody with the force of, of will and character to be able to take the country, this enormous diverse country, in the in the right direction. It's it's a huge challenge. So I would say that Mr. Gorbachev was not, he was one of the weakest leaders the USSR ever saw. <laughs> what book am I reading right now? I'm reading multiple books. I am always reading three, four books in parallel at the same time. And I never have enough time to read books. Unfortunately, I have such a long reading list that I need to read. I think it's going to take me 10 or 20 years to finish all those books. <laughs> so it's all wishful thinking, but I am always reading. I, you can see a few books here. And there are the books as well. So I'm always reading multiple books. Aryan Chakravati asks, will countries go back to invasion-like mode in the future? Yes, absolutely. It's the nature of the human species to expand, to have conflicts, to go to war. Right now, we are in an age of relative peace, relative peace. We sitting in India are in peace. Most parts of Europe are peaceful. North America is peaceful. Central America is problematic. Southern America is right now reasonably peaceful and all. Africa has conflicts in various places. Right now, the world is relatively peaceful, but there is a lot of poverty. There is a lot of, um, there are many problems, artificially induced problems. But I think that in the next 10 years or so, we could see an upsurge in what you call invasion mode. As the Chinese economy winds down, as it grinds to a halt, which it is right now, I it is possible the Chinese leadership could get a little desperate. And they would perhaps feel that while they are still strong, they should gain as much territory etc. as possible and they may try to indulge in certain military misadventures. It could start with Taiwan, it could start somewhere else, but it is quite possible that they could do something silly, something stupid, if their economy shows further signs of, of uh, stalling. So in the in the past, the Chinese economy for the, for the past two, three decades was growing at 10% plus. And that's what happens when you have the right policies in a very poor nation. You grow very fast. Today, China has almost become a middle-income nation. 
but now its economy is not growing anywhere as fast as it was the official figures are of about 6% growth but that is the chinese communist party's official figures which have to be taken with a few grains of salt i i certain many experts and geopolitical analysts believe that the actual growth rate is about 1 or 2% right now in china so that is problematic very problematic and that could cause some panic in china and it could cause some rash decision making and then we could have an invasion of taiwan or or maybe the japanese senkaku islands or maybe some misadventure with india which would be really stupid or something in something in china's north east manchuria etc where they have conflicts historical conflicts with russia and so on so there is a significant potential for such things happening in the coming decade so yeah it's 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 very possible i hope it does not happen i want a peaceful world we want to live in peace but you never know it's quite likely i would say right Okay Deer says I have read Anuj Dar's book the government doesn't want you to know this he is an ex journalist and has researched for decades about about Subhash Chandra Bose also known as Gumnami Baba my comments so uh, I haven't read this book I haven't read any of Anuj Dar's works thus far so uh, I cannot comment as somebody who has read his works but I agree with the overall uh, uh, the overall understanding i i am i'm very i'm quite convinced that subhash chandra bose did not die in that alleged plane crash in taiwan formosa all those years ago i believe it is most likely that the person known as gumnami baba was actually subhash chandra bose who was forced into anonymity in this manner by possibly by the indian government maybe the condition of for him to return to india was that he would not declare that he is subhash chandra bose and he would go into some anonymous mode somebody who never speaks gumnami baba i believe there is a very strong possibility that this is the case so i do not believe the mainstream narrative that subhash chandra bose died in that so called plane crash i believe that he survived beyond the second world war and i think i am i think there is a very strong chance that gumnami baba was actually subhash chandra bose back in india i will need to read uh, mr anuj dar's works to uh, understand this in further detail because i am aware of the fact that he has done extensive research in this topic so it is again something that i need to read uh, read up on but my comment is that i am quite convinced that subhash chandra bose did not die in that plane crash and most likely he came back to india Okay tell us about the Islamic golden age was it built on the backbone of indian science and technology so this is something that uh, modern historians don't want to speak about but if you look at the works of the arabic historians and translators such as al al biruni etc they are very clear about the fact that they have merely translated indian texts so let's let's talk about what the islamic golden age was so it is something that went on for about 2 or 3 centuries from the from the 9th 10th 11th 12th century uh, thereabouts 
and it was an age in which the islamic world was quite liberal they absorbed a lot of knowledge from india because at that time india was under invasion by the turks uh, it started with uh, with the arabs under mohammed bin qasim that's what is that's what we learn in history but later it was the turks who unleashed wave upon wave of invasion on india afghanistan was the first to fall gandhar the first part of india to fall to the turkic invasions was afghanistan then parts of punjab and so on it, it was a gradual process which lasted about two or three centuries or more than that and what happened was that along with the soldiers and invaders the turks brought in scholars from the islamic world people like al biruni and there are various other writers so these individuals would go to indian universities as you know india was a land of education india had so many great universities nalanda takshashila tilhara vikramashila odantapuri sharda peet and so on and so forth there are so many you cannot even name them all in this session so india had so many of these great universities and they all had these immense libraries which were all eventually destroyed and burned in the turkic invasions but while these existed these still existed these islamic uh, scholars and translators would come to indian universities they would uh, translate books that interested them books on astronomy books on pharmacology toxicology medicine ayurveda mathematics uh strategy uh the panchatantra the the jataka tales and so much more so they translated all these texts from sanskrit into arabic and then they brought all that knowledge back to the islamic world at at that time i think baghdad was the center of the islamic world the center of the caliphate and these arabic historians were very clear about the fact that these are translations from sanskrit translations from english te- from from sanskrit texts one of these books was called kitab al hisab al hindi the book of hindi or hindi or indian mathematics and so on so all of this knowledge and see the thing was that there was no copyright system at the time uh, indians were very free with knowledge we have always believed that knowledge is supposed to be free it's not supposed to be sold or or withheld so indian universities and professors and scholars were very happy to allow these guys to translate these texts into arabic and then all of this reached the islamic world and it was used to uh, develop certain technologies uh, you had the ceric steel which was uh, produced in india for about 2 and 1/2000 years Uh, that was also exported to the middle east it is now called damascus steel for some reason uh, and so on so all these technologies made their way into the islamic world all this um, knowledge made its way into the islamic world and that led to this renaissance of sorts in the islamic world which is called the islamic golden age and the islamic historians and writers and translators did not ever hide the fact that all this knowledge came from india but when this knowledge was transmitted to europe the european historians decided to uh, to hide the true source of the knowledge so the uh, the decimal system was called the arabic numerals for a very long time today they are called the hindu arabic numerals these are just indian numerals there's nothing arabic about them the only arabic thing is that it was transmitted from to europe through the arabs 
not through the Indians, and so on. So the Arabs and the Islamic uh, writers never tried to hide the fact that all this knowledge was Indian knowledge. It is the Europeans who, who have hidden that knowledge. So today it looks like algebra, trigonometry, calculus, etc. It all emerged spontaneously in Europe at the same time and all, and so much more. So the Islamic book Golden Age was built on, a, on the backbone of Indian science and knowledge and technology, which is very true. And the Islamic Golden Age came to a sudden abrupt halt. I think it was in 1258 when the grandson of Chinggis Khan, Hulagu Khan, invaded and destroyed Baghdad and the Islamic world. So the Islamic Golden Age came to an abrupt halt all of a sudden in in the 13th century with the Mongol conquest of Baghdad. So that is a brief account of what happened and what the Islamic Golden Age was. All right, some more questions. There are so many questions. Let me pick up some interesting ones. Uh, Ratan says, my take on vaccines as not much research is available. They allowed it for emergency used, use. So this leaves us confused. See, vaccines uh, typically need to be developed through an iterative process. You first develop a te test vaccine. You try it on, on hapless animals. If it shows good results there, then... And if it doesn't show good results, then you improve it. You do something else. You make a vaccine that works on animals. Then you try it on human subjects, a small group of humans. If it works there, then you uh, do a second round with more with more test subjects and so on. So it's a long iterative process. There are many failures. There are many iterations and, and so on. So vaccine development typically takes a long period of time. It It, it is typically not something that is rushed through and and vaccines are typically not released in a few months' time. It's typically a few years, two to five years, I would say, at least. Now, in the case of the coronavirus pandemic, we had to develop vaccines very fast, very rapidly. And so the process was kind of compressed. It was kind of rushed through. And therefore, there is a great deal of doubt among certain people about the efficacy of the vaccine. There are many claims of vaccine injury in some parts of the world, in the West especially. Certain vaccines are considered to be more dangerous by certain people and so on. It is confusing for lay people. It's confusing even for scientists who have not studied every sp st step of the process in detail. The thing is that I believe that the Indian vaccine at least is very safe. It is quite effective. So as long as you are in India, I would say go for the Indian vaccine. It, it, it has a very high uh, efficacy rate and uh, there is almost no report of any adverse reactions. I cannot speak about other vaccines. Ideally, we would have wanted a proper, long, drawn-out process of vaccine uh, testing and all that. Unfortunately, it was not possible because we had this newfangled virus that was unleashed upon the world somehow. So yeah, that's why you had a truncated process of vaccine development. I would say that the Indian vaccine is quite safe. I don't know about the Chinese vaccine. I think it's not a good vaccine at all. It has a very low efficacy rate, I believe. And I don't know about any other effects, but the Chinese vaccine is something 
which we don't use in India, which is a very good thing. I think we have two or three vaccines in India, the Indian-made vaccine, the Indian-developed vaccine. There's the UK vaccine and maybe something else. I would say, just to be safe, go for the Indian vaccine. It works. All right, what else? Lots and lots of questions. Uh, Yashodeep says, when will Bharat unite and form Akhanda Bharat again? What will be the what would be the conditions or circumstances for it? See, the first thing I would like to say is that Bharat is not a geographical region. It is not a nation state. It has always been much more than a nation. Bharat is a civilization. It's a civilization state. And the characteristic of a civilization is a common unifying culture. So it's not about geography, it's about culture. You may have people of the same DNA as you, but if they believe in a different culture, then they are not part of Bharat. They are not part of a culture. They are not part of a civilization. And that's what we have in Pakistan and Afghanistan. These are now foreign cultures, foreign countries. They are the same people as us. Similarly for Bangladesh. They are the same people as us. The same ancestry, the same DNA, the same shared heritage, the same shared history. But today they follow a foreign religion, a foreign culture, and therefore they cannot be part of Bharat. They are part of the historical, uh, the historical region of of Bharat. But as long as they practice a different culture, they cannot be part of Bharat. So I will, I would say that it is not possible for this dream of Akhanda Bharat to be realized at least in the next 100 years. You can conquer these regions militarily, yes, and you can integrate them into your country by force. But these people, they are a different culture. How are you going to integrate them and assimilate them when their beliefs, uh, when, when they have so much hatred for you and your culture? It doesn't work, right? So I would say that it is not going to happen anytime in the next 50 years or 100 years. It has to be a multi-generational project. And what are the conditions and circumstances in which Bharat will become, will reunite again? Well, first of all, India needs to become a cultural, economic and military superpower once again, like it has always been throughout history. So India needs to get to work on reforming its internal system. We need to get rid of this fake Western system of governance, this this inferior system of education, and all these colonial influences. We need to rediscover who we really are. We need to rediscover our self-respect. We need to invest in science and technology. No, There is no progress without science and technology. Just study Indian history. The times when India was the greatest uh, civilization in the world was when India was the most advanced scientific and technological power in the world. So India needs to do all these things. Once India becomes that powerful again, by the process of osmosis, of ex-osmosis, India's culture will again start influencing people beyond its current geographical boundaries. And then the situation, the circumstances will again come into place where you can have an Akhanda Bharat once again. It's not something that can happen in the next 10, 20, 50 years or 100 years. I think it's going to take longer than that. 
so we all have to play our, our role in this it is a multi generational project our descendants should we should we should ensure that we work hard enough and and smart enough so that our descendants 2 3 4 generations down the line are able to live in a reunified india so that's what our objective has to be we have to be patient and we have to be confident that's what we need right all right okay amal says what do you say to those that the right wing nationalists hired you you know what <laughs> i wish somebody had hired me i wish i was getting some funding a few lakhs of rupees a month from right wing or any wing i wish i wish i was on the payroll of some some big organization i'm not so all i would say is that you know what i am not right wing or any wing i am some people say i am uh, whatever they say you know what i am not even a nationalist i am a civilizationist if i were to describe uh, my my belief my my world view in in one or two words it is indian civilizationist i am not about right wing or left wing or center wing or anything i i would like to see some day india's civilization regain the status that it always had for thousands of years that's the only that's the only thing that i am interested in i don't care about right wing nationalists or left wing nationalists or anti nationalists or whoever else it is i wish somebody <laughs> was funding my work unfortunately nobody is so that's just the way it is uh prithviraj says what is what are your views on the practicing of reiki and meditation so i am not familiar with reiki i have uh, never uh, practiced or studied reiki i don't know i think it is some form of meditation or something i'm not sh- i don't have the specifics meditation is great it is very beneficial but it's not something that will give you results in half an hour meditation is hard the first 5 10 15 times you try meditation it's going to frustrate you but only if you persevere will you start seeing the real benefits of meditation and again there are many forms of meditation some are nonsense some actually work so you have to find the right form of meditation that works for you every human being is different what works for you may not work for me what works for me may, may not work for a third person everybody is different we are all unique in our own way we have to find what works for us there are many forms of meditation that all originate in india you have vipassana you have what they call transcendental meditation uh and and various forms of yoga even pranayam is a form of meditation because the very basis of meditation is controlling your breath of course in transcendental meditation there is no emphasis on controlling your breath etc it's all about clearing the mind of all the noise the internal noise it's about stilling the mind and focusing the mind and that is very very difficult my friends the mind is an indomitable beast it is a noisy beast it doesn't want to be tamed so it's it's a struggle so if you i would say meditation is very very beneficial for anybody but it is very hard to do especially in the beginning the first 5 10 15 20 times it's going to be a struggle if you persevere through that initial phase then you will make significant progress 
So uh, what form of meditation you should practice is entirely up to you. I think there's all kinds of information available online. I would say go for one of the forms, ancient forms of Indian meditation, whether it is whether it is something as basic as pranayam, which also works as meditation, by the way. Or it is something like Vipassana, which is, again, very old. Uh, right, uh, right now, I think the Buddhists have tried to claim it. Fine, okay. Claim it. I have no problem with that. And then there are various other forms also. So I am familiar with Vipassana and and breath control, which is pranayam, etc. But uh, and I have also tried what they call transcendental meditation. I think you should try two, three different types of meditation and see what works best for you. I think it's something that will benefit everybody in their personal growth and development. Okay, let's take some more questions. Right, good question. Neil says, if Netaji was alive as Gumnami Baba, then why did he he remain hidden underground rather than forming his own party and becoming the leader of India? You know, let's say that tomorrow I want to form my own political party and be the leader of India. You think I will succeed? I have almost zero chance of success. What if someone wants to become a leader of India and form their own political party? It's not an easy job. We have to understand what political power is. Political power needs mobilization of people, people who will follow you and obey you unquestioningly and people who can take control of the streets. It's always that. Behind political power, there is actual hard power. And for that, you need you need mobilization of people. You need this invisible infrastructure, this network of power. That's what you need to start a political movement. It's not an easy thing. So forming your party, okay, theoretically you can form a party, but the moment your party becomes significant in any way, you will come up against very stiff opposition from existing political parties who will feel threatened by the emergence of your party. And then you will run into various kinds of trouble. And as you know, if you look at the history of India, China, etc., when there is political conflict, there is conflict on the streets. There is violence. And, And if you are a small political party, you think you can withstand that sort of violence? I mean, just see what's happening in Bengal very recently. All I have to, all you have to think about is the events in Bengal in the past few months to understand what happens when a new political party comes up against an established political establishment. Now the thing is, why did Subhash Chandra Bose not reveal who he, who he was and why did he not, not try to start a political movement? I think, see, I, I am speculating here. I am. This is pure speculation. If Gumnami Baba was actually Subhash Chandra Bose and he was allowed to come back to India, then there must have been preconditions imposed upon him by the Nehruvian regime. The first condition was would have been you will never reveal who you are. The second condition would have been you will never try to become politically active. And maybe he, he agreed to this and that's why he was allowed to come back to India. Now in case he, ha- he would have revealed who he was and tried to start a political movement, I think it's very easy to get rid of a person like that. Politics is all about, about you know, sometimes in politics, they eliminate people. 
I mean, I know it's not a nice thing to say, but I mean, look at history. Look at history and that's it. This is something that happens routinely. If a new threat emerges politically, you have political assassinations and all. And it's happened so many times in India. So many, there are so many instances of political assassinations and all that. So you know what? These are the reasons why Subhash Chandra Bose was not able to do that. In case Gumnami Baba was actually him, then all these restrictions were placed upon him. And the moment he would have tried, if he had tried to reveal his identity and become politically active, he would have disappeared overnight. So these are the hard realities of life, especially in politics. And that's the reason why he was marginalized. I hope that uh, the truth comes out. Okay, let's take some four, some more questions. I already spoke about. I already spoke about the Kalpa Vigraha idol. I will study it in further detail, and I will get back to you, sir. Um, okay, Rick says Elon Musk wants us to be a multi-planetary species. Is it necessary? You know what? It's not necessary. I would say, I, I don't I am not against us becoming a multi-planetary species. I would love that. But it is not necessary as of today. It, it is good to have. And let me tell you why. So first of all, one of the arguments that is given as to why we need to start colonizing other planets is that our planet is dying. We have ruined it totally. We have messed up the environment. We have polluted all our water bodies. Now we are, we are even destroying the oceans with all this plastic pollution and, and various other assorted garbage and sewage we are dumping into the oceans. Uh, so uh, we, have, we have caused so much deforestation. Now we have caused climate change. The global temperatures are slowly rising and it's going to cause global warming. It's going to cause the sea levels to rise. We are going to lose our coastal cities and settlements and on. So we are on the brink of a natural catastrophe, it looks like. Something that will happen in slow motion over the next 100-200 years. And therefore maybe it's go it is necessary for us to move to Mars or some other place. So that is one of the arguments that's put forth. I would say it's a stupid argument. That is not the right uh, the reason why we should go to go and explore other planets. Earth is our forever home. It is our birthplace. We cannot trash it and then move on. This, this entire idea of trashing your planet and moving elsewhere, it is something that comes out of European colonialism. So what the Europeans did in the past 500 years was that they, they invaded entire continents, North America, South America, Africa, Asia, and they plundered everything. They treated everything as a resource. They, they, they treated Mother Earth as a repository of resources, something that is to be exploited. And they caused immense ecological damage. If you look at North America today, it's you. I mean, the entire mentality is the is a settler mentality that we are here temporarily. This is a country, a land we have conquered. We're going to use it. We're going to exploit it, and we're going to trash it. Look at what's happening. Look at the fracking that's being done. It is it is causing so much harm to the environment. It is polluting 
uh, groundwater resources almost like forever and so on. And they just don't care. They just want to exploit resources and use them and then move somewhere else. So this entire mentality of trashing your home planet then moving somewhere else, it's it's a consequence of the colonial mentality uh, that has been in vogue for the past few centuries. Now, if we destroy our planet and move to Mars, what is the guarantee we will not destroy Mars in a few hundred years again? So that is not the right uh, reason for moving to another planet. But I would say that it is very much worthwhile for us to become a multi-planetary species because it gives us more options. In the future, if something happens, if if we discover a comet or an asteroid that is headed for Earth, then as of today, we do not possess the technology needed to divert an asteroid or a comet, which would possibly lead to the end of humanity. So in case we have another planet where we have been able to settle down, it will give our species a chance. We may even be able to move some more people to Mars or wherever else before such uh, an impact happens. So that is one reason why we would want to become a multi-planetary species. The other reason is that it it helps us build better technology and it gives us more options. Eventually, hopefully, we should become a species that exists on multiple planets. Planets maybe even on multiple star systems. If we can move to al- to the Alpha Proxima Centauri star system or something in the next uh, couple of hundred years or so, it would be good. So progress, scientific and technological progress is always welcome. We have to keep progressing. But it doesn't mean that we should treat our home planet as a disposable resource. So I am I agree with Elon Musk to a great extent. We should become a multi-planetary species, but it should not come at the cost of destroying our home planet. Okay, let's take some more questions. Okay, this is an interesting uh, interesting observation by Kalyan Karthik. Kalyan says, Karthik says that as a Telugu speaker, I can vouch for the fact that Telugu has at least 50% shared vocabulary with Sanskrit, but Telugu is in the so-called Dravidian language family, RIP logic. What are my thoughts? <laughs> I agree with you. You know, this entire language family, the so-called Dravidian language family, was created by a uh, British missionary. Was it Was it Robert Caldwell? I think it was Robert Caldwell, who studied one southern Indian language, Tamil, and on the basis of his fragmentary, rudimentary understanding of just one language, he created an entire language family in which he placed Telugu, Kannada, Malayalam, Tamil, and, and various other southern Indian languages. And our historians and linguists and academic experts blindly, slavishly have been following this nonsensical categorization ever since. It tells you, it shows you how deeply mentally colonized and mentally enslaved our academicians are. So like you say, the Telugu language has at least 50% shared vocabulary with Sanskrit. It is easier for a person whose mother tongue is Telugu to understand Sanskrit than it is to understand Hindi. And the same can be said about languages like 
like Kannada, for example, which also has about 40 to 50 percent at least of shared vocabulary with Sanskrit. There is a significant amount of Sanskrit vocabulary in Malayalam, in Tamil and every other southern Indian language. And yet it's called the Dravidian language family. I am not saying that, that we don't need to properly examine the languages. What I would like to see is that we, need, we the government of India should start a national institute of linguistics in which they would appoint young researchers, not established ones, young researchers in their early 20s. A bunch of researchers, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 researchers who would spend their dedicate their time to researching India's linguistic families a priori from the very beginning without any of these colonial influences. And only then will we be able to, to study and understand our ancestral linguistics properly. Right now, like I said, we don't have first principles thinking. We have dogmatic thinking. Our thoughts are all predicated on what nonsense has been poured into our heads since the time we were born. We don't think a priori. We don't think from first principles. So that is something we need to start. So Kalya and Karthik, you are absolutely right. There is no logic in placing Telugu in the so-called Dravidian language family. There is no such thing as a Dravidian family. The word Dravidian is a colonial, colonial invention. It is something that was derived from... Some word, uh, I, I don't remember which word it is, but if you look at India's classical literature in any language that is more than 500 years old, there is no word like Dravidian or Dravida. This is a colonial invention. It, it The word Dravidian is, is uh, derived from some word that they had found somewhere in India's literature, but it is an, it is a it is a neologism. That's what it is. So I agree with uh, you, Karthik, that this needs to be re-examined a priori from first principles. Now, this is a good question. What's the difference between culture, religion, and nation? Culture is, is an entire manifestation of your lifestyle. The languages you speak, the traditions you follow uh, and, and practice the kind of lifestyle you have, the kind of worldview you have, uh, the festivals you celebrate, the kind of music you enjoy, and, and the, the kind of music that has emerged out of your out of your uh, civilization, the kind of entertainment and art forms you have, the dance forms, and the kind of education uh, system you have, what kind of... Uh, what kind of ethics and morals uh, you follow and and uh, and revere kind of you know and 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 what gods you worship what is your philosophical outlook and and all of that is what constitutes culture so when we talk about dharma the various dharmic traditions hinduism buddhism jainism sikhism and much more that is actually culture it is a manifestation of culture and civilization. It is not a religion. It is not religion. What they call Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, these are not religions. These are Dharma. dharma the translation of Dharma is not religion. Dharma is a word that cannot be translated into English because in English is a narrow, inferior and limited language. 
it is not a nuanced language so what is religion religion is one of the three abrahamic belief systems one god one prophet one book there are three abrahamic religions so religion is that only no polytheistic belief system can be categorized under the under the umbrella of a religion it is different it's culture it's it's civilization so that is culture that is religion and nation is simply a geographical entity a geographical entity in which you uh, so it is the it is something that uh, comes out of the treaty of westphalia a few centuries ago so today we follow the westphalian nation state system in which every nation is a specific geographical area in which you have a number of people who live there and you have a specific form of governance so that is a nation and each nation is supposed to be sovereign and there should be non interference and so on and so forth according to the theory which never actually happens in reality it is not implemented in practice there is a lot of real, lot of uh, interference and uh, attempts to undermine nation sovereignty and so on so india is today defined as a nation state which is an enormous fall from its historical position which is that of a civilization state so in a civilization you can have multiple political entities you can in a civilization you can have multiple kingdoms multiple nations so if you look at the extent of india civilization historically it has been the entirety of india subcontinent and much of southeast asia much of china is influenced by indian culture historically tibet was part of india civilization and japan also to a great extent is influenced by indian culture so civilization is something that is much broader nation is something that is very truncated and restricted religion is an abrahamic construct and culture is what i just explained in brief so good question very interesting username <laughs> uh, the question is why did the why were martial arts wiped out from india at, at the national level while they survived and remained in other parts of the world how to revive it see you know what uh, whenever a country or a nation comes under foreign occupation under the uh, occupation of a brutal tyrannical uh, regime then the first thing they do is to try and stamp out all possibilities of native resistance so when the turks invaded and occupied india they did their best to stamp out indian resistance and therefore the best thing to do was to try and ban and wipe out india's indigenous martial arts india had a very ancient very rich tradition of martial arts today the only few things that remain are what remains of shastra vidya in northern india there is a dance in saurashtra in gujarat which is all that remains of the ancient rajput tradition of sword fighting then you have kalari payothu in 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 kerala which is one of the old forms of india's martial arts and then you have martial a martial arts tradition in manipur which the british also tried to stamp out in the from 1891 onwards but some of it has survived and it's very interesting so it's in manipur it's called thangta and there is another form of martial arts also in manipur now you can you see that martial arts have survived in burma in thailand in the philippines in indonesia as well in burma you have a form of martial arts in thailand you have uh, 
Muay Thai in uh, Philippines, you have what do you call it? Silat, I think Silat. In Indonesia, you have Kali. Uh, in Korea, you have Taekwondo. In Japan, you have uh, you have Karate Do. You have Aikido. You have uh, Ninjutsu and so on. And in China, you have you have Kung Fu. Now, as we know, I hope you know, Kung Fu is Indian in origin. It is an Indian uh, monk and scholar, Bodhidharma, who traveled to China and introduced this ancient Indian system of, of uh, unarmed combat to China in the Shaolin Temple, which was built for his predecessor. And that is what the Chinese took forth and developed further over the centuries, and it is now called Kung Fu. So most of Asia's martial arts are influenced by Kung Fu, whether it is Shorin Ryu Karate, whether it is Taekwondo or many other things. So one could say that many of, in, of Asia's martial arts owe their ancestral lineage to an ancient Indian martial art that is no longer in, in existence. So the reason why we no longer practice our martial arts is because of the past 1000 years of foreign occupation of India, in which these foreign occupiers did their best to eradicate India's martial culture. So how do we revive India's martial arts? So we can try and uh, uh, create schools of various martial arts. For instance, we have Shastravidya in Northern India, which is all about armed combat, which is not something very practical to revive because you may get hurt doing that. Even if you look at the Rajputic uh, sword fighting tradition, that is something that one can't really revive because Indians are no longer allowed to carry swords. <laughs> uh, what can be revived is to some extent uh, Kalari Payotu, which does involve unarmed combat. It also has sword and shield fighting. So Kalari Payotu can be revived uh, when, it, when it comes to the unarmed combat tradition. And the Manipuri martial arts are very interesting. They should also be revived and you could have nationwide tournaments of various martial arts and that would be interesting, I would say. So that is one way one could revive the martial arts in India. Right. Let me take one more question. <laughs> is a zombie apocalypse possible in real life? So the so once again, if you look at first principles thinking, what is a zombie? A zombie is a person who has died, physical death, and then somehow that person is revived. So according to everything we know about science, it is not possible for a person to be revived after the body has died a physical death. And therefore zombies, the, according to the classical definition of zombie, that, that is not medically possible. So I would say that a zombie apocalypse is not really possible in, in real life. But yeah, you can have certain diseases that may feel like a person has kind of lost their mind and become like a zombie or something. That is technically, theoretically possible. But the classical zombie apocalypse of the movies like World War Z and all, nah, that doesn't really, that's not really possible in real life. Shall I take one more question? Okay, this is the last question for today. From Rahul Pandey, was India at around 800, 1000 AD a Buddhist majority country? How did we reverse the demographic? You know what? The thing is this. There is no such thing. I have said this a hundred times. I will say it a thousand times more. This categorization of Indian religions 
into Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism is a foreign concept. The British decided to divide and rule India. Therefore, they tried to divide India's population and create divisions by creating divisions between Buddha Dharma and other Dharma, between Jaina Dharma and other Dharma, and so on. Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Hinduism, etc. are the same thing. They have the same ancient origins. They have the same fundamental concepts. What you are told is, the, is that Buddhism doesn't build... Be, there is no concept of, uh, of soul, of Atma in Buddhism. That is a lie. And it is also told, it is also, it is also told that uh, Buddhism does not uh, recognize the validity of the Vedas, which is once again a lie. Look at my older videos, you will find the truth there. I have given references. So now, to answer your question, yes, uh, about a thousand years ago or so, uh, there was a significant, uh, uh, what we call Bodhya Dharma, which is one of the flavors of Dharma itself, was very popular in India. It was quite widespread. What happened? How come it is not practiced anymore in India? It is all a consequence of the Turkic invasions of India. So the Turks, when they invaded India, they started from Central Asia. Central Asia was Hindu-Buddhist. All of it. Even today you will find ancient Hindu temples all across Central Asia, even in Armenia, Azerbaijan. And you will find Buddhist stupas all across Central Asia. In Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Azerbaijan, so on and so forth, Kazakhstan, everywhere. So the Turks, what they did was, they destroyed, they eradicated Buddhism from Central Asia. They destroyed all the stupas, all the monasteries, all the temples. And they destroyed as many statues of the Buddha as they could. So the, uh, the word for idol or statue in these people's vocabulary was Buddh, which means Buddha. And when they started invading India, starting from Gandhar, which is Afghanistan, they started destroying every manifestation of Buddha that they could find. So they destroyed all the ancient universities, all the ancient um, uh, Stupas, viharas, monasteries, etc. They massacred Buddhist monks and they destroyed Buddhist uh, statues and so on. So their aim was to destroy every manifestation of Buddh, of Buddhism, of Buddha. And that's why their primary emphasis as they conquered more parts of India was to destroy Buddhism, what they considered to be the, the uh, religion of the infidels. So it is the consequence of the Turkic invasions that Buddhism or, or this specific flavor of Dharma was wiped out from India because all the teachers, all the monks were massacred, all the libraries were destroyed. The libraries and the universities taught all flavors of Dharma, not only Buddhism. Okay, uh, When you talk about Nalanda University, which we know burned for three, three or six months, it did not only teach Buddhism, it taught the Vedas also. When we talk about great... Um, uh, scholars like Nagasen, Nag Nagarjuna, etc., uh, who went to China, Japan, etc., they did not only teach Buddhism, they also taught the Vedas. So, but the Turks wanted to destroy all manifestations of Buddha. And that's why they succeeded in wiping out what we now call Buddhism from India. That is how this demographic, what you call, was eradicated from India. It was done by the Turks about a thousand years ago. 
and that is the story all right my friends that is it for today thank you very much for all your questions and i am going to end this for today i will do two more sessions next week and it will continue every week so i will see you very soon my friends thank you every uh, thank you everyone for all your questions for your participation for your support and i will see you soon thank you good day and good night bye